0: Amen. Please be seated. On this Easter Sunday 2018, I'm going to, you might say, revive a sermon that I've done here, I think twice before. Fifteen years ago was the first time. About eight years ago is the last time I remember. There might be a time in between there. So, if you've heard this sermon before, I want you to listen closely this time. It's hopefully new and improved. I love to preach this message, and Easter seems like a good time to do so. You know, we normally walk through Bible books, and we'll begin the book of Acts soon, so there are a few occasions that allow for such a thing there are many passages that i will refer to so i won't read just one to begin instead i will ask you to start to think to yourself as you know the bible maybe you're a new student of the bible so this will help you a little bit uh learn a bit more about the bible if uh, you have been studying for a while um, you'll have some ideas what is the greatest statement god has ever made in his word What would be the most profound utterance we find in the Bible, whether it be a word or a phrase, a verse? Where could we, in the 66 inspired books of Scripture, could we find one place that we would say this captures the essence of it all? This really gathers what God's message is to us. What would be most important for us to take home, to understand, to learn, to take to our hearts? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. As we seek to answer it this morning, let's bow together. I want to ask the Lord to help us um, as we begin this time together. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Um, we are the people of Christ, the resurrected Christ. So it is true that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we are, we are able to have a relationship with you as your children because our representative, our Savior and Lord, was raised again and is alive, sitting at your right hand even now. Lord Jesus, you make intercession for us, and on this day called Easter Sunday, we worship you with a special, even elevated remembrance of the resurrection of our Lord. Please grow our faith in you as we consider the greatness of your word and the greatness of this message, because you are our great God, and I pray this in the name of our great and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. The Bible is the great book. But what statement would capture the essence of the Bible's message? The stories of the Bible are great because they're true and they're reliable. The events recorded by Scripture are all great events. Even the smallest event, because it is in the hand of God, is a great event. The God of the Bible is the great God. In reading the Bible... Can we identify a word or a phrase or a verse that typifies the greatness of God and his word? Uh, May we ask as an exercise, what phrase, word, statement is the greatest of all? Now, some might say, if you're going to ask something that big, it makes most sense to start at the beginning. Because that's where it all begins. And so they might go to Genesis 1 in the third verse of the Bible already. May be obvious to some that his greatest statement comes there, and God said, "Let there be light and here 's the key, and there was light that shows the power of god 's word, his creative word i mean there 's nothing more powerful than the Word of God that it can speak the things that we depend upon into existence we can 't make And anything that has been made was made from God's first work of creation. So his first word starts it all. That has to be his greatest statement. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Hard to beat that kind of a statement for greatness. And it is a statement to be held forth for the ages. But there are better statements yet to come. In fact, in the same chapter, Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, it gets more personal and even greater for us as we consider how God identifies you and I compared to all the other created things. It says in Genesis one twenty-six, which some might say or argue is the greatest statement, the most profound statement in Scripture. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Of all everything, we are made in the image of God according to God's word. Surely there could be no greater statement than one that declares man and woman to be created after the very image of the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowledgeable creator of the universe. The very pattern for man can be found according to this statement, let us make man in our image. You know, think of the created beings, Um, the elephant, it's mighty, it's powerful, it's it's a massive, amazing animal, but it's not created in the image of God. The white-tailed deer, the wiliest of all the forest creatures, elusive and secretive, a picture of God's creative handiwork, but not created in the image of God. The horse, it's a fast, majestic, even a royal, just a power personify in that animal. Yet it's not created in the image of God. The lion, awesome, powerful, beast of the jungle. But it's not made in the image of God. Surely we would have to say Genesis 126 is God's greatest statement. A statement that reveals that we are image bearers of the very God of the universe. Let us make man in our image. And it's a great statement. Mighty, profound, but not the greatest. Maybe we would find the greatest still in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. After sin has come in and has made a mess, even of the image of God and man, now it's still there, but it's marred. Now there's this tragic scene of disconnect between God and man because of sin, our sin. And the response of God, maybe these are the greatest words in all the Bible, the response of God, his response could have been justly destruction, right there. Start over, do away with it, ruin everything, take man off the face of the earth right now, be done with it, and he would have been right to do it. But that's not what he does. In response to the fall of man, sin entering, he says to the serpent, who's responsible immediately for this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here, maybe these are the greatest words. He, the offspring of the woman, the seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right there, a picture of the cross. Grace in Genesis 3.15. The promise of salvation. The promise of reversal of what was done. promise of a second Adam to undo what the first Adam messed up. The grace of God. Announced in Genesis 3.15. Maybe this is the greatest statement God makes in Scripture. Because this pictures Christ coming. This sets in motion, you might say, the rest of the story that plays out in Scripture. Uh, you could see from this point there being this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of, the seed of the, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and it all the way to the cross where Jesus wins. Maybe we could say this is the greatest statement then. And it is great, but I still think we should push further. There's more. Still in the book of Genesis. After this great announcement, and it was great, we have sin envelop mankind, leading to God's judgment with the flood. But keeping his promise to keep the seed alive, he doesn't kill everybody, as all should receive. He keeps a family alive by his grace, and then... After that, you think it goes great, right? Then the Tower of Babel occurs. It doesn't look good in between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. But in Genesis 12, maybe there we have the greatest statement. Because it is like a rebirth of the promise he makes in Genesis 3. When he speaks to the most unlikely characters, this old man and his barren wife, and he speaks to them in this way in Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation. Me? Us? I mean... Of all people to pick, the greatness of God. He could take the weakest in humanity and fulfill the greatest of promises. Maybe this is it. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And maybe if we were to take out of this great set of verses the greatest of the statements in it, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The great promise to Abraham shows now how God will bring the seed forth. So now we have a clear picture through this nation where Messiah will come from. Maybe this is the greatest statement that God makes in his word, tying up all that's come before it, giving us a picture of what would come before it. And you know, for us, because we know what happens and we know how this plays out, We recognize the greatness of this text, but imagine Abraham hearing for the first time. He had to laugh with vigor. How can I, an old man with a wife well beyond bearing uh, children years, have a child? Let alone be the father of a great nation through whom the whole world would be blessed. But we on this side of history know that God did exactly what he said he would do. Maybe this could be considered. Maybe someone would argue the Abrahamic promise is the greatest statement that God made in his word, seeing what comes after. It's a powerful statement for sure. But I think you agree that God has better yet to come. We search further. Several years go on past Abraham. There's Isaac. There's Jacob. There's Joseph. Many great statements. They end up in Egypt. The first pharaoh has favor for Joseph and his family. But over the years, the pharaohs forget. And the nation of Egypt grows. The nation of Egypt has slaves. And they become mighty. Probably the most powerful nation on earth at that time. Led by a man that they believe was a god. Pharaoh. And that pharaoh didn't remember Joseph. He only knew the slaves of Israel. What happened to the promise to Abraham? Abraham. Then, God speaks to a man who couldn't even speak straight, who was a murderer, and told him out of a burning bush that he was going to rescue the nation of Israel. Then he used this man who could barely speak, needed help to stand before Pharaoh to say what he needed to say, and he told Pharaoh that this God was asserting his godhood, and that you, Pharaoh, would fall if you didn't let the people of Israel go because he was about to fulfill what he said in Genesis 12. He was making them a great nation. And maybe the greatest part of that whole story, and there's so much there, it may have been towards the end, after the plagues, and you have Pharaoh standing as this God that he thinks he is in front of a people who are worshiping him as a God and thinking of all the other false lesser gods that control the Nile River or the animals or whatever it would be that God showed them he was sovereign over it. And maybe the culmination When God speaks of sending the angel of death over them, unless they be covered by the blood of the lamb, they would be judged. They would be stricken. And maybe these are the words that are the greatest, because it's in the face of all the false gods of earth. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, Exodus 12. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt... I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Maybe, I am the Lord. In this context, is his greatest statement. Because Egypt represented the most powerful of the world. And God was saying, through slaves, led out by a man who could barely speak, that I will show you that I am God. No one could deny. This must be God. I am God. I have already sent a bloody river I have already sent frogs and lice to sleep in the beds of the Egyptians and their Pharaoh. Now I will send death upon them. And unless you are covered by the blood that I provide through my direction, you will be stricken. And the beauty of this, of course, is the picture. Harkening back across the ages of those other great statements, this is a picture of the one who would be sacrificed. And those who believe on God's word about redemption in the Redeemer, they would be saved. They would be covered by the blood. I am God. Pharaoh, you are not. There are no other gods. What a great statement. What a great statement in the history of God's redemption. Undoubtedly a great statement. No one would disagree. But it's not the greatest ever. So we search further. After Moses is used by God to lead Israel out of captivity, They find themselves on the cusp of taking land. They have people. God gave them their law, but they don't have land. To be a great nation, they need these three things. And so God, on the cusp of the promised land, uh, Moses' time is done. And he raises up another leader to do the unthinkable. Now, we look back at the stories, and you have to take this out of your mind. We know they won these battles when they entered Canaan. We know this, but what we don't often appreciate is there's no reason they should have won any of this. They were not a battle-hardened group coming out of slavery. They were not people who had experience in war like so many of the nations around them, especially the ones who occupied the promised land. So just the fact that he would call a leader and say, I will do what I will do is amazing. It's great. Listen to the statement in its totality. "'Moses, my servant, is dead. "'Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, "'you and all this people into the land "'that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. "'Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, "'I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. "'From the wilderness to this Lebanon, "'as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, "'all the land of the Hittites, "'to the great sea towards the the going down of the sun, "'shall be your territory.'" No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. It's tying back to the other great statements. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses, my servant, that he commanded you. Certainly, there could be no greater statement than that which assures military victory after military victory to a place that had a lame military. The vision of Moses to see his people uh, enter the promised land was grand and glorious. However, it was Joshua who was given this promise and this capability uh, to witness this miraculous inheritance of the land over the residing Canaanites. Joshua would see its vision the vision that Moses gave to its completion. And it's true. Most every great general in history thinks that God is on their side. Two sides both think God is on their side. But only one general ever actually was told audibly by God that he was in fact going to win these battles. What a great statement of the living God to tell Joshua that he would give the nations over to him. Surely we would have to say that God's greatest statements, statement uh, were the words here spoken to Joshua and Israel some 3,500 years ago. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But I think not. It's a great statement. But we should keep pushing. After they take the promised land, despite all their disobedience, and it was manifold, They even wanted to be like the nation they just came out of. God could have struck them dead again. We want a king like everybody else has a king. You talking to us directly isn't enough. You giving us judge is not enough. We want a king like they have a king. And God gives them a king. Of course, the first one falls on his face as an example of what happens when you seek after what others have and not by God's wisdom. But in his great grace, he brings a king to them who's worthy. A king who will lead them to some amount of earthly glory. But this king has a greater purpose. It's a purpose to point to the ultimate king. It's to grab back to those great statements before and start to uh, personify it now in this king. And the beauty is the way God picks him is so unlike the rest of the nations. He may have given to them the king as they asked for, but he would not give him the king the way the other nations got the kings. And listen to the words that he uses through the prophet Samuel to pick the new king. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He's talking about the other. Samuel did what any of us would do. Go in and look at this guy's sons and pick a king. And you're going to the biggest, strongest, best-looking, smartest appearance. That's who we pick. That's how the world picks stuff. God says in his greatness, don't do that. I rejected those. The ones you think should be king, I have rejected them. For the Lord sees not as man sees. This is great. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And only the Lord can do this. This is the greatest of God, to pick a king for us on the basis of what only he knows. And of course, David is just a picture of the great king, the king of kings to come. Maybe we could argue that this passage, well, not always cited as one of the great ones. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The great wisdom of God. It's revolutionary. It's extraordinary. I mean, their day was no different than ours. They judge constantly on outward appearance, but God looks to the heart and we can trust a God who knows the heart. What a great statement but it's not the greatest in the Bible. We spent two and a half years going through Isaiah. I bet you all of us can pick four or five verses that we might say are the greatest, but none would probably be as profound, I hope you would agree, as Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, kind of the crown jewel of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, where the picture of Jesus is painted for us now. Maybe here we find the greatest statement. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 700 years before he comes and does his work, Isaiah pictures it perfectly. Even picturing the kind of cr- kind of execution that wasn't even devised for many, many centuries. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Verse 10, maybe verse 10 out of Isaiah 53. If we pick one verse that kind of quantifies the whole thing. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's will to send his son to take our sins so that we would not be punished, that we would receive his righteousness, and he would pay for them, God would accept them, and then it goes on. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. He even hints at a resurrection. The person and the work of Christ pictured 700 years before he comes. Can we not say this would be a candidate for the greatest statement in the Bible? Surely we would say so. But God speaks more. God sends his son. God accomplishes this work. And the gospel writers are given this picture of God's fulfillment. Four of them write the same story in different angles. And here in Matthew 1, verse 20 and 21, maybe here we have the statement of all statements. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And maybe these are the words, the greatest words in the Bible. For he will save his people from their sins. For he will save his people from their sins. That, those have to be the greatest words. Everything that had been forecasted before now had come to pass. And here he is, Jesus, Joshua, the Savior, the saving one, is here to save his people. Finally, after thousands of years, great promise after great promise, great statement after great statement, great act after great act, God re-enters time and space and says, now is the time that the Redeemer that I promised for so long will come into the world and he will save his people from their sins. Certainly, this is the most glorious news ever. But I think not we should push further still it's a great statement but then there's john 3 and verse 16 where jesus is speaking to someone just like us who wants to know how to be right with god they think they know how they're right with to be right with god because they were born into a religious family they did the right things they did more good than bad all that all those lies we think are true that we did more good than bad and this man comes under the cover of night to talk to jesus about how it is that a person could be right with God. That's what Nicodemus was asking. And Jesus says what may be the greatest statement in Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who could possibly argue that this is not the greatest statement God ever made? It tells you how to be right with God. Trust in Jesus. Believe on him. Rely upon him. Have faith in him. That's what he's saying. And in so doing, you will not perish. You will have eternal life. You'll be counted in him. Everybody knows this verse. You see it at football and baseball games. Our kids memorize it from the time they're little over and over again. Churches shout forth the message of John 3.16, which they should. Whoever believes in Christ will not reap the just deserts of their sin, but rather will experience eternal life. From that moment on, by the way, Greatest of all messages, for sure. The very word, gospel, means good news. I say great news. One would have to conclude that this statement of Jesus to Nicodemus and to us must be the greatest statement that God ever made, but I think not. Yes, this personal message of promised salvation is awesome for sure, but why can we believe his words? Why can we believe? If if a teacher tells us that, a guru, a religious leader, a Pharisee, a rabbi, a philosopher, if they tell us that, on what basis should we believe them? I mean, they're talking about eternal life, and the reason why that resonates is we know we die, and that's what we're most worried about. That's our biggest enemy, our biggest anxiety. But so what if a teacher gives you some profound message like John 3.16, if there's nothing to back it up? What power do they have to say this or make this statement? Every statement that Jesus made was great, but one stands out in a glaring way, especially thought of in the context I just gave. Jesus raised a couple people from the dead in his ministry, but the last one that he raised is the most impressive. This is a man who was dead for several days. He, The process of decay had begun. This would be not just a... uh, Resuscitating a dead person. This is, this is in some sense recreating broken tissue, rotting flesh. This friend of his, Lazarus, who Jesus on purpose delayed his coming to him. And for this purpose, I believe, to speak these great words as he stood before the tomb of his friend. And people said, let's, they could sense they did not feel it wise to open up the tomb of a man who had been dead these days. It would have been terribly smelling. It would have been awful. Yet he says, move the stone away. And then he shouts and says these words. Maybe these are the greatest words of God in Scripture. Lazarus, come forth. And just like when he said, let there be light, light had to come into being, Lazarus had to come forth. And he does. And this becomes a picture. It's a true occurrence that's also a picture of the same thing that happened to me and happened to you. God at some point said, you come forth because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And guess what? You had to come forth. Now, I know we think we did this and we did that, we prayed this prayer, we shined this card, we raised our hand, but the real deal is, God said, you come forth and you came forth. Because that's all you can do when God speaks to you, is do what he tells you. You came alive. He borns you again at that moment. And this profound statement, Lazarus comes forth, maybe that's the greatest statement in the Bible. How could he possibly make a greater statement? It, it assures us of the other teachings that he makes. that They're pretty profound. If a man could do this, he could raise a man. That... But this is the same person who created Lazarus. And now he recreates Lazarus in his dead, rotten flesh. But I still think there's greater yet to come. In the Gospel of Luke one of the records of Jesus' crucifixion, maybe it contains the greatest statement that God ever made. When we look at the cross, Jesus made several statements there. But maybe this is the greatest, and maybe thus the greatest of all the Bible. While on the cross, nails ripped through the flesh of his wrists and feet, Blood pouring out of his ripped up back and pierced side. Birds of prey, uh, no doubt circling over our Savior as He stayed nailed against that rough wood in excruciating and unthinkable pain. The mocking crown of thorns digging into His head, down to His scalp, uh, with blood in His eyes and the scorn of the crowd in His ears, Jesus cries out, not for the Father to bring down judgment. But rather, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How can this possibly be? We cannot conceive of this. The creator being put to death by the creation, yet his response is grace. Father, forgive them, he says. How could there be a greater statement? God the Father responds to the fall of Adam and Eve and all mankind by stating that he will bring forth a redeemer. He states that this redeemer will have to suffer and die for the redemption of his people. Now, here at that very moment, the Redeemer promised by God, God the Son himself, on a cruel, rugged cross, being killed by the ones who sent he was sent to redeem, and he looks down and does not speak judgment, but rather says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Certainly, we must conclude that this is the greatest statement God ever made. It's great. Yes, glorious, most definitely, but not the greatest yet. John records for us the last word in that same place on the cross. After uttering these remarkable words of forgiveness, certainly the words that Jesus speaks before giving up his spirit must be considered the greatest statement that God ever made. In the midst of the darkness of God the Father's just judgment on the Son to pay for the sins of his people, Jesus raises his voice loud enough to be heard and said, It is finished. What's finished? The promise of God to send a seed from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. It's finished. The cross was the bruising of the Savior, but it was the crushing of Satan. Sin, death, and hell, for that matter. What's finished? That promise to Isaiah to send a suffering servant who would bear the iniquities of God's people to heal us by his stripes on the cross. It is finished. Jesus' work of redemption is finished. finished. All those hundreds of prophecies that predicted the coming of God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, all of them were fulfilled in Christ on the cross. It is finished. The work of redemption had been paid. Certainly, we would have to say. This is God's greatest statement, those epic words, it is finished still. Even hard to say what I'm going to say. But there are greater words still uttered. Yes, we have not heard the greatest yet, and you'll never guess them if you haven't heard this before. Even if you heard it before, you may have forgotten. How can I say such a thing? It is finished is not it. To discover this, I believe we need help from Paul, the apostle, and what he does is give us some very important life-changing information, and it's, it's true to life, too. If you think about what he says, I think we can agree that Paul gives good insight. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, now keep in mind, Jesus raised people from the dead, but they died again. We're talking about ultimate resurrection here. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. What are they preaching? They're preaching all the things I just went through and a lot more. This preaching is all in vain if the dead are not raised, and if Christ has not been raised in particular. Our preaching is in in vain, and your faith is in vain. Very bluntly, you are totally wasting your time today if Jesus did not rise again. This is not a gathering of historic, um, emotional, my parents used to go to church, we're in America, this is a colonial-looking church, we should go to a church on Easter Sunday. (laughs) Stay home if Jesus is not raised. I would not be here. I would find something else to do. That's the honest truth. It's all fakery otherwise. We're all in big 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 trouble. Go do something else. If Christ has not been raised again. However, In Matthew verse 20 chapter 28 verses 1 through 10, we have the greatest statement that God makes in Scripture. All these statements we have read, they are all great. But they are a farce and empty of meaning, according to Paul, if Jesus does not defeat the power of death. So, what if the Bible says that God spoke the world into existence, that man and woman are made in God's image, or that a Redeemer's promise to come, or that God promised to fight for Joshua, or that David is the king, or that the prophet Isaiah predicts a Messiah. So what if the Messiah is still dead, or the person who died is still dead? They're not the Messiah if they're still dead. They've saved us from anything. They die too, and they're still dead. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. We're not there yet. We're getting closer. Verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Almost there. We're not there yet, though. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples we are just about there. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, here it is. Greetings. What? Greetings? These are the first words he utters. The first word he utters. After he has defeated death. It's all true. Greetings, he says. And they came, and they know what it means. They know it's the most important thing God ever said. The ladies are not fooled here. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They didn't hug him and say, we're so glad you're back. You notice that? That's not what it is. Oh, I've missed you. That's not what they say. They worship him. Because he's God. And he died for them. And he rose again. And that means all the Bible's true. Greetings. That's it. The greatest statement God ever made. In actuality, in the Greek, the word that translators show simply is greetings in ESV. It's from Cairo, which is a common greeting that literally means be joyful. It's, it's more profound than just high. Be glad. In some cases, it means health or all hail some versions will say rejoice some of the old version older versions Matthew Henry says the salutation speaks The good will of Christ to man, even since he entered upon his state of exaltation, it is the will of Christ that his people should be cheerful, a joyful people, and his resurrection furnishes abundant matter for joy. If you think of those words, greetings, and realize how much is packed into that, how much has been fulfilled by his rising again in those first words that are uttered, it does fill our lives with joy, no matter what may be happening now. We, too, await that same resurrection. All health is what he's saying. He's saying rejoice because this life you live that breaks us down, that tears us down, that will eventually see our end if he doesn't come first, is not the end of it. And how do we know? Because there is Jesus standing there saying greetings. John Gill, the great Baptist commentator, says, saying, All hail, rejoice, all health of soul and body, all happiness and prosperity, both temporal, spiritual, and eternal, attend you. The greatest statement that God makes in the Bible. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Because Jesus had defeated death, we have life. Had he not risen, we would all still be lost in our sin and dead in our trespasses. But no, Jesus rose again and he says, greetings to the women who search for him. And he says, greetings to you today who are looking for your eternal salvation. You have found it in Christ. And only he has the credibility to say to you, greetings, rejoice, all health, what should our response be? Exactly as we read in twenty-eight, nine of Matthew, And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, the resurrection of Jesus proved his deity. His resurrection proved his power to forgive sin. Jesus rising again, displayed his power over death, our biggest fear and worry, our worst enemy. But now he's dead. Our enemy, death, is dead. For it is the risen Christ in in him that we have complete redemption for our sins and, and life eternal, even now. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and rising again. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing the will of the Father and applying the work of the Son to us who believe. We worship you, our triune God. Amen. Let's turn together in response to 286. 286, worship Christ, the risen King. Let's stand and sing verses 1 through 3 as the elders prepare the table.